Erica Young said, if you don't risk anything, you risk even more. And if you're struggling with your weight and excess fat, then you might not even be aware of why or what you're risking. And my guest today is going to tell you all about how to unlock this situation. So the big question is, how do women over 40 like us keep weight off, have great energy, balance our hormones and our moods, feel sexy and confident, and master midlife? If you're like most of us, you're not getting the answers you need and remain confused and pretty hopeless to ever feel like yourself again. As an OBGYN, I had to discover for myself the truth about what creates a rock-solid metabolism, lasting weight loss, and supercharged energy after 40 in order to lose 100 pounds and fix my fatigue. Now, I'm on a mission. This podcast is designed to share the natural tools you need for impactful results and to give you clarity on the answers to your midlife metabolism challenges. Join me for tangible natural strategies to crush the hormone imbalances you're facing and help you get unstuck from the sidelines of life. My name is Dr. Kieran Dunstan. Welcome to the Hormone Prescription Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Hormone Prescription with Dr. Kieran. I'm so grateful that you chose to join us today. Welcome. Today, my guest, Dr. Betty Murray, is going to help shed some light on why your cell's fat switch is stuck and you can't seem to lose any weight after 40. This is true for women, but also for men. Losing weight no longer is a math problem where it's calories in minus calories out. It becomes way more complex. And maybe you have really tried everything you're at your wit's end and you just can't figure out what's wrong. No worries. Dr. Betty is going to help you figure it out. She's the host of this Functional Life podcast and has a very dynamic practice. Her graduate work has, has focused on the difference inside the cell, mitochondrial function and carbohydrate metabolism. Don't worry if you're like, what are you talking about? Betty is going to explain it to you. And she's going to help you understand why if you don't risk anything, you risk even more. That's a quote from Erica Young, which is prolific and really applies to us at Midlife. So I'll tell you a little bit about Dr. Betty and we'll get started. She's a nutrition expert, certified functional medicine practitioner and speaker. Dr. Betty Murray, she's a PhD candidate, MSCN, IFMCP, all those initials after her name. She helps women over 40 harness their hormones to lose weight optimize sleep, restore energy, and thrive in life. And who doesn't want that? During her research for her PhD, she made four key discoveries that led to hormone imbalances that plague women over 40. Restoring balance to these key metabolic pathways are the basis of her hormone reset program. She's the host of this Functional Life podcast and the founder and CEO of Living Well Dallas Functional Medicine Center, and she's a frequently featured nutrition expert on Fox News Broadcasting, CW33, NBC, and CBS. Welcome, Betty Murray. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. I'm so excited to have you. I loved your interview in the Stop the Menopause Madness Summit. And I said, Betty, you got to come on the podcast and talk to all of us women over 40 about really what's going on inside ourselves. Why are we gaining weight? Um, we're gonna dive into that in a second, but I gotta share with everyone or have you share why you're so passionate about this topic of weight gain in women over 40. 
I came to functional medicine and functional nutrition originally because I was diagnosed with colitis and I kind of went on my own journey to try and figure out, could I do things with my diet and lifestyle to keep from taking harsh drugs? And, you know, through that process was able to really, you know, kind of heal that. And honestly, I've been, you know, knock on wood, flare free for more than a decade. And, but when I hit my forties, so I've never been a naturally thin person, but in my teens and twenties and thirties, I was able to maintain body composition by doing what everybody hears, you know, in high intensity intervals and doing some weight training and eating really, really lean, right? Low, low carb. And I could have the occasional cheat and it would all work. When I hit my forties, it was like some major switch turned off. My hormones got worse. Like everybody talks about heavier periods, more moodiness, sleep problems that were already a problem and that, you know, became almost unwielding, you know, two or three hours a night awake. And I went back to my functional medicine peers because I was already in the industry and tried hormones, tried all these different things. And no matter what I did, I might get my sleep slightly better or I might, my periods might be a little bit better, but I could not lose weight to save my life. I'm a nutritionist. So, you know, it's one of those things like you don't want to be sitting in the room with somebody talking about weight loss and those kind of things when you yourself are struggling. And I, and I, and all the women I was seeing, I could just feel it for them because I was in it with them. And so when I went back to school for my PhD, because I just, I love to learn, that really was where I centered a ton of my research is what is different between men and women? Because I think any woman can tell you if they go on a dietary change with a male, it's like two different worlds. A guy gives up beer and pizza and they drop 20 pounds, we eat <laughs> lettuce and right? We yeah, eat guys do the beer and pizza, no beer and pizza diet which does yeah. not work for any woman. And most of the women I see are the ones that are like, I'm doing all the right things. They're working out, you know, every morning and they're eating low, low carb and they're drinking just water and they can't figure out why it's not working. And so that's really where I went on this journey because I myself was in it. And I just, I saw all these women struggling with it. And the other thing that just broke my heart and it was true for me and true for most of my clients is at some point in our conversation, they would say, you know, Betty, I want my life to be about this, this next season, right? Because when you get to your 40s and 50s, we're looking at this next season of life. Maybe it's, I want to do this with it. I want to have a bigger impact. I want to have a better relationship. And then they would almost always say, Betty, if my body was different, I could. If I felt at home in my body, if I vehicle that I'm driving every day was where I felt comfortable, my life would be better, then I would do X. Mm -hmm. And that's me like broke my heart because I think women in this time period of life, we are in such a great opportunity to leave our impact. However, we want to do that, whether it's with our family and kids or reach out into the world or change the world. But a lot of times we're holding ourselves back because we don't feel at home in our body anymore. That just drives me at this point. It's why I do my podcast. It's why it's, you know, I'm, I go to clinic every day. It's why I really reach out and try and help women because I, I truly believe we are the ones that are going to change the world. You're speaking my language. I got the chill bumps going all up and down because that's why I do what I do. And, you know, it really gets to this quote you shared with me before we started from Erica Jung. If you don't risk anything, you risk even more. And I see so many women just giving up because they can't do what they want to do in life because their health, they can't get their health where they want it to be. And I consider my mission 
to help women get physically in shape so that they can give deliver the gifts that they have to give the world that are gonna save the world. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely, you know, I and sometimes that risk, you know, is really uncomfortable. So when I work with women in my hormone reset group, part of what we do is we start acting on those dreams, desires, and goals, even though we don't feel as if we should, could, or would, right? So I'll give a really good personal example, and you know, people might be uncomfortable with this. So for obviously more than a decade of my life, I was not comfortable in my own body. It affected my relationship with my husband because I'm like, please don't look at me. You know, please don't look at me. So one yeah. of the things that I started doing is I started taking pictures of myself, slightly provocative, nothing, nothing nasty, but you know, for my husband. And I, you know, I would set up my phone on a little, you know, a little stand. I take a bunch of pictures. I take 50 in one of them. I'd be like, that's not too bad. Right. Cause that's where you're going. <laughs> <Right. it." laughs> and then I would show them to him and he would be like, you look beautiful. It wasn't for that response. It was for me to look through all those photos and go, this one looks good. Cause it started out, this one looks okay. And then it started out going, and then it started changing to, I look pretty in this one. I look hot in this one. I'd send this to me. And so like weird things like that, that seems so foreign to people, help you start to own that beauty. Like the younger women today are embracing body positivity. And as healthcare workers, we, we have this fine line between we want body positivity, but we need to be healthy. But you don't see anybody our age doing it. Polina Poroskova, she does it. But none of us are really standing in it and going, yes, you know, I have some scars. I have some, you know, I have some jiggly bits, but I'm still beautiful. You know? you know, it's so true. Let's have a little divergence. We're going to get into the hard science, y'all. Don't worry. It is the Hormone Prescription Podcast after all. But let's go down this little detour because I was actually thinking the same thing the other day when I saw the cover of the new Sports Illustrated with the woman who's very curvy. And I actually interviewed a woman on the podcast when I first started it several years ago, who is a younger woman, I believe she weighs 350 pounds, who ha actually has a huge following about it. And I saw some of the comments about the Sports Illustrated cover and they're saying, are we now uh, condoning obesity and poor health in service of not shaming anyone and being body positive? And I'm just, wondering what other people's thoughts are. So since you brought it up, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it, it is hard because I do think, because I think it's a circular thought. I know my body opinion changed by the time I was at, like at the end of elementary school, right? As soon as you hit that tween years. I think a lot of times our eating habits and other things that may lead to weight gain. And then, because it starts as a little bit of weight gain, then you get a lot of metabolic changes that adds to that weight loss. It's not as easy as calories in, calories out. But I think the shame that we feel about our body that often develops when we're teenagers that we carry into our adulthood mm -hmm. perpetuates behaviors that also make us more likely to use food as comfort and emotional and those kind of things. So I think there is an important part of body positivity, but I also think that we have to look at if somebody is significantly overweight, they do have all kinds of additional risks for chronic disease like diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, even cancer. But I think if we keep coming at it from the shame game, and making people feel less than, but whether it's through media or other things, for not being, you know, the ideal one percent person, then we're going to perpetuate a bigger problem, you know. So I think uh -huh. it is a fine line dance, and it's one that I struggle with 
all the time, how to, how to handle it in an emotional way and then also in a professional way. Because I have a pro pro professional responsibility to right. be real about what the risk factors are. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, I think when we look at a lot of health problems, there is shame attached to them. I think there's a lot of shame associated with type 2 diabetes, for instance, or sometimes for hypertension or high cholesterol. People think in their minds, oh, well, you must be eating too much salt. You must be eating too much animal fat. You must be eating too much sugar. But we don't have that around things like autoimmune conditions. If someone has lupus or multiple sclerosis, we really don't have shame around that. So I don't know that weight issues are unique in that respect. I do think that our generation, well, at least I might be a little older than you, my generation. I mean, I was steeped in like Adele Davis and Jack LaLanne and oh my gosh, thin and, and twiggy and you've got to be so thin. And I look back, I had to pull out some photos of myself when I was younger for my TED talk that's coming up. And I look how skinny I was and I thought I was fat. I know. <laughs> so that's I think that's really insane, making people who are healthy feel like they're overweight. But I do think it's a very fine line because it's my understanding from the data that even a 10%, if you're 10% over your ideal body weight, there are consequences to be had from that. And that's not much. If, you're, if your ideal body weight is 150 pounds and you're 15 pounds overweight, my understanding of the data is you are going to have consequences. And so I do struggle with that. I still think we should embrace everyone, scars, bulges, you know, skin blotches, all the things that we all naturally have and love that. But I don't think, you know, I personally don't think that the like the Sports Illustrated cover is condoning poor health. I think they're just celebrating beauty in all of its various forms. Absolutely. But, well, the yeah. definition of beauty has been different over millennia, right? So if we look back into the Renaissance, being curvy meant that you were fertile, right? right. So, you know, it just depends what time period. So beauty is defined by time period and paradigm and the zeitgeist of the time. I'm slightly younger than you, but I definitely hit the, you know, the supermodel era of the 80s. And then right after that, my early 20s was heroin chic, because nothing's better looking than somebody that looks like they do heroin, yeah. right? <laughs> you know? And so you, you, those mixed messages and those messages that we get, I think are damning and damaging. And metabolic damage that results in obesity, which is 100% metabolic changes in the cells that cause that, but we take it and still as a medical community treat it as a morality problem, which makes me crazy. Yeah. Because it's not a morality and a, and a behavioral problem. It is a metabolic problem that happens. And the problem is, is you can't give up eating, right? You right. can't you stop cannot. that. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm just not ever going to eat again. That doesn't work. So, yeah, so I think it is all those things. So my goal going forward is to help people understand what's happening inside their cells, what's happening with their hormones, how we might be able to manipulate that both therapeutically in a short term to fix some of the problems, and then how to live ongoing where I can maintain a healthy weight that means my body feels healthy. Because a lot of times the other thing is we, we have a number on the scale and it's often a number we had at like 18 to 22. And that's the number we feel like we need to be. When we weren't at hormonal peak yet, it might not really be the most ideal weight for us. And I like for people to focus on what does healthy feel like? 
what does it mean? Can I run around and play with my grandkids? Can I go hiking? Can I bike 60 miles in a weekend? Like those things to me are more meaningful because those are real gauges of can you live your life? It's not a number on a scale. Yes, I love that. It isn't a number on a scale. And light with that, let's dive more into the science. So I know that you focus on four main areas that lead to hormone imbalances that plague women over 40 and contribute to the weight gain. I love how you talk about this cellular fat switch. And basically that this fat switch gets turned on by these factors and we have to learn about them to turn that switch off. So let's start start there and talk about what these factors are. Right. So some of these people may have heard these stats. So statistically, a, a woman's metabolism will slow about 5% for every decade, right? And most women experience about a 10 to 15% increase in body weight around the belly just from entering menopause, right? So the thing to remember is that estrogen, when it's balanced with the other hormones and everything's working in, in, in synchrony, is actually slimming. But when it's out of balance, too high or too low, we have a problem. We have we play that sort of exorbitant price for that. So part of what we see is we have inside the cell, we have mechanisms that help our cell either burn your carbohydrate forms like glucose or fat. And really what's happening is that stuff has to be happening inside the cell in a very, very orchestrated way. And a lot of times we focus on, you got to lower your insulin, which then, you know, makes your body able to burn fat. Well, my question always was, is if women's metabolism changes at a rate that's different than men, what role must estrogen play? Because it does. So there's a fat switch inside the cell, and it's controlled by a cellular metabolite called uric acid. So uric acid gets produced inside the cell. And it's produced when there's damage inside the cell, when there's damage to the DNA and RNA. And so when uric acid rise, rises inside the cell, it acts as a switch and lowers the cellular mechanics. So think of it as the powerhouse inside the cell. It makes that powerhouse slow down. So, you know, for anybody that's in our age group, instead of having a brand new rockin' Tesla, you have a 1984 Yugo. So everything slows down. And, and this, this came about, this is not my research, this is another gentleman, uh, Rick Johnson, I believe he's out of University of Colorado, I believe that's right. But they found that this change, this mechanism, is something that happened millions of years ago when we went from being ape to man. And it was what allowed us to make it through an ice age. So the apes that actually had this switch turned on where uric acid would come up and slow the powerhouse survived, you know, a basically a disaster, which was an ice age where food was not available. So this uric acid response is to some degree a starvation response. It's also the response of hibernation. So that's how they found it. They started looking at bears and squirrels and things that hibernate. And as the bears go into the spring and summer where they start eating more high fructose environmental things like fruits and things like that, honey, we would see this increase in uric acid. They would start gaining body fat. And then when they got to the wintertime and they go to hibernate, they'd be able to use that body fat over the winter to survive. So the rise in uric acid slows the powerhouse and slows down your ability to burn fat. And it's doing it through a bunch of mechanisms, which we won't really go into. So the interesting thing is women, when they go through menopause, have an automatic increase in uric acid to the extent of at least about a point to a point and a half at a minimum. 
And part of this is there is interplay between estrogen and the cellular mechanics in the mitochondria that affect uric acid levels. So if uric acid rising inside the cell is the switch that tells the cell to slow down and now we can't burn fat or carbohydrates very efficiently, it is intimately tied to the actions at perimenopause and menopause when we lose estrogen. So that's super huge because a lot of women are like, wait, I'm eating low carb, I'm burning 400 calories a day in my exercise and I'm eating 1200 calories, how can I possibly not lose weight? And it's because the hormones and the intracellular, the stuff going on inside the cell, directly control whether you burn those calories or not. Because your fat switches off, right? <laughs> it's on, it's on. Yeah, well, and then depending yeah. on what you eat, you may be turning it on all the time, right? Because foods right. make uric acid. Talk a little bit about that because everybody's wanting to know, Betty, what foods are gonna be turning my switch on and which ones turn them off? Anything with fructose in it. High fructose corn syrup is the devil. Never eat it, never touch it, don't do it. Anything with high fructose amounts. Now, fruit like strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, apples do have some fructose resident in it, but it's got fiber and water and all this other stuff and it's not gonna raise that fructose level in your body. So fructose is the primary driver of uric acid in the body, period alcohol, sugar, processed flours, so anything that's baked, any kind of processed things that we've manufactured, cookies, crackers, breads, all of those things, if we eat them too much, they're gonna raise uric acid. And then the other most insidious thing, and I think this is where this may be hiding for a lot of women, I know it is for a lot of women in my group, is that a lot of the food additives raise uric acid. Things like MSG, autolyzed yeast extract, yeast extract, flavor enhancements are all things that we've added to foods to make them taste more flavorful that actually raise uric acid. You know, you and I both grew up in the same age. In the 70s, we had definitely a small percentage of the population that was overweight, but the obesity epidemic ballooned in the 80s and then it accelerated. So if we look at what happened to our food supply, high fructose corn syrup was introduced in the 80s. The use of crappy seed oils, which is a whole nother conversation, like soy, corn, all of those things. And then the massive explosion of food additives and flu flavor, flavor enhancements has exploded. The other thing that raises uric acid, and this is going to upset a lot of women, I think, is aged foods. So things like Parmesan cheese, your charcuterie. So all the women that are like, I just want a glass of wine and some cheese and crackers and and some you know, salami and I'd be happy, guess what? That food's gonna <laughs> raise it. And I'm one of those people, like if I'm on my deathbed, I'm probably gonna have that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll get it ready for you, but maybe not so much right now, right? Right, you can have it, but you just can't have it frequently. So, and then depending on your genetics, you either, you either have a hair trigger uric acid switch or it might be like a moderate uric acid switch. Let's talk a little bit about that because I know that's one of the four factors that you talk about your genetics. So you talked about the hair trigger switch. So what genetics are we talking about? Because everybody's wondering, do I have that? The truth is, is all of us have that enzyme uricase we, we, to some degree. So all of us have an expression of that. There is a very small percentage of the population that don't. And guess what? They can't gain weight, period, at all, zero, zip, never. <laughs> and, and we're talking a handful. So if you're hopeful, that's not us, right? Um, so all of us have that switch to some degree. And then the degree in which it gets turned on depends on 
A, the other thing that the research is kind of indicating is the more you do those foods and the more you've done this over time, the more hair trigger it is. Because you got to remember, it's a starvation response. It's our body thinking we're starving with plenty of food. So there's another enzyme that's also there, and genetically we may have this more expressed or less expressed, is a thing called the polyol pathway. And the polyol pathway is where our body takes glucose, so the blood sugar circulating around in the body, and changes it to fructose. And so fructose, again, we just learned is terrible for the uric acid. It also gets metabolized differently than glucose. It doesn't have insulin control. So if you're doing a you know low carb diet, but you're eating things that drive that uricase activity and drive uric acid up, and what little glucose you may have circulating in your bloodstream, your body can convert it to fructose. And again, it's part of this sort of starvation pathway. That pathway is amplified as we go through menopause. So we are more likely to do that. What's interesting, same gentleman, Dr. Johnson, they were looking at this pathway and when you're dehydrated, so let's say you're dehydrated, you had a bunch of coffee, you're having a smoothie with some fruit and stuff in it, but you probably don't have enough, you're not hydrated well enough. Mm -hmm. Being dehydrated increases the activity of turning glucose into fructose in everybody. That was a mic drop moment for me when I heard that. I was like, oh my gosh, it's not just that it helps your cellular mechanics, but it quite literally changes whether your body is gonna make fructose and drive uric acid up. So those two genes we all have. But as women, we have genes that control how our body metabolizes estrogen. So can we take the estrogen that we make and can we get it out of the system? So think about it this way, our estrogen, we wanna use it. We need to wrap it in a bunch of different tissue wrappers and those are, those are handled by your genes and your enzymes, and then you eventually get it to the trash can. People that have mutations that slow down the pathway for getting rid of estrogen, one of them is called co-methyltransferase, the other one's called CYP1B1 or cytochrome P450-1B1. Those are genes that help our liver sort of package stuff. If those are slow to do that, you are gonna have an increased risk of metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and obesity as a female as you go through into perimenopause and menopause. The research shows that. And it's because there's alterations to how your body handles glucose. And the other side of it is I think, and I haven't seen this in the research, I think that this might be part of the mechanism that increases our liver's capacity to make glucose out of amino acids. So let me back up so I can explain that. Mm -hmm. Our body always needs glucose. Red blood cells must have it. The brain must have glucose if you're not a good fat burner. So if you don't have ketones, we gotta have glucose. So our body has a mechanism inside the liver that can take glucose, I mean, I'm sorry, amino acids, so that's proteins broken down, and it can take it and convert them through a thing called gluconeogenesis into glucose so your body can use it. I think that there's an interplay between that and these hormone metabolism genes, because we know that women are amplified also in that pathway. We are more capable of going through gluconeogenesis at a greater level as we go into perimenopause and menopause than we did when we were in our 20s and 30s and all of our hormones were balanced. It's, it's our survival mechanisms are sort of ramped up. We're designed to conserve. Nature cares about women being able to reproduce. Right, So our bodies are generally designed to conserve. We don't need a lot of men on the planet. They just need to be hot. Right? <laughs> oh, no. You know, because, because truthfully, if you look at what nature cares about, can we reproduce and keep the species going? So we are designed to make sure that our body can manufacture food when we need it 
and make the, you know, make the body work properly. And so we have those things that are automatically turned on by our genetics. We have the estrogen detoxification pathways that a significant percentage of us are slow to do. I have those genes. That's how I ended up down this pathway. And that I'm going to have a harder time losing weight as those hormones start to fluctuate. And especially once estrogen kind of drops. You know, so many important points that you bring up there. So let's unpack this a little bit. So it is true that biology, nature sees us as reproductive organs, basically a mechanism to bring a baby to life and take care of it for 18 years. And when we go through menopause, the hormonal changes are such that we're almost disposable and we're only one of two species that lives any length of time in menopause. There's a certain species of whale that is the other species, but every other species of animal, when the female loses reproductive capacity, she dies. But I think that what we don't recognize is that some of the changes that we undergo actually do promote our death, even though we don't die quickly, it's kind of like a slow death. And so I want everyone to wake up to that fact. Uh, Everybody who listens knows that I am a firm believer that you can't have optimal health without balancing your hormones and hormone replacement. But this issue of how we package and detoxify in our liver, our estrogen, I think is huge. And I think it's one of the biggest places where mainstream medicine totally misses the boat. And so I would encourage every woman listening, if you don't know your SIP1B1 and your COMT, and if you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about estrogen detoxification pathways in the liver, you have got to find somebody who can help you dissect your genetics on that and figure out what you're doing with your estrogen or not. And if you're one of many women, most women are worried about breast cancer, which is actually not a thing that you're likely to ever die from. But it seems like more women are concerned about that than the consequences of no hormones. Definitely, you need to get these checked because if they don't function properly, your risk for breast cancer will be increased. And I know I'm on a little bit of a rant here, but I think it's so important, this idea of it's not only do you have the right hormones on the bus and are they in the right seat at the right level, but are they getting off the bus when it's their bus stop? <laughs> yeah, I believe for me, that was a major mechanism in my 40s as I hit per- perimenopause and all these things were going nuts. You know, I have, this is where my entire PhD was looking at hormone metabolism. And I was basically two things. I was estrogen dominant and estrogen toxic. And I was doing all the right things, but it was one of those things I needed to probably monitor it, you know, a lot. And a lot of that research wasn't there when I first went into, or was there, but it wasn't commercially available. And now we have the capacity to test this and look at it, look at the genes and also the way to get rid of it. But there's a significant portion of women walking around with mutations there. It's so true, Betty. So everybody listening, hopefully you've heard that. And the other thing you mentioned that I want to highlight that you don't hear everybody talk about is the role of the nervous system in your hormonal function and your fat retention or not, right? So can you give a little more detail on that? Because I don't think that everybody knows about that. Yeah, so your nervous system, you know, is uh, are the nerves that go out from the brain and communicate, and, you know, and your brain and communicate to the body. And so they communicate through neurotransmitters. And most of us know things like cortisol. Cortisol is bad. It leads to insulin resistance, leads to weight gain. 
but the nervous system is also responsible for giving the nerve message to your fat cells to tell your fat cells to dump the fat out so you can burn it. So the nervous system sends out messengers through norepinephrine and epinephrine that are there that are supposed to help transport basically the fat out of the fat cell and be able to get it to particularly your muscle cells to burn. And the nervous system activity of those hormones and neurotransmitters becomes weaker when we get older. So as estrogen levels decline, these also become weaker. Epinephrine and norepinephrine are also affected by COMT. Right, so if your COMT is messed up, they're probably going to be a little bit off. So mm -hmm. as we go into menopause, the jiggly bit fat that we don't like, so the stuff that's on the outside of the muscle, like the hips, thighs, butt, abdomen, that requires a ton of nerve responses. There's adrenal receptors in there that pick up the epinephrine and norepinephrine and, and sort of get that message. They sort of go to sleep. So the fat on the outside of your body is first in, last off. It's very hard for your body to do that, particularly if you're not moving enough. If you're sedentary because you don't feel good, those nerve cells sort of go to sleep. And so a lot of women may embark on an exercise routine or other things and they don't see movement fast enough. They're like, oh, the fat's not coming off yet. It's because that jiggly bit stuff is the last. So I like to paint this picture because I think it helps people kind of move through that discomfort of it's not moving fast enough. Think of your muscles, like your legs, your hips, your abdomen, your butt as a piece of meat, right? So think of it as its prime rib. So prime rib, if you've ever looked at it, has fat running through it. And then mm -hmm. cutaneous fat or the fat on the surface on the outside. Your body has to nerve and get that muscle tissue to burn everything off on the inside first so it becomes a fillet. And then it finally gets to the fat on the outside. And it's through that nervous system response. So here's a really cool thing. Did you know that a person that is twitchy, you all know these, usually they're a boy, not that it's not girls, but you know, they move kind of herky-jerky. They, uh, they're always, something's bouncing, something's twitching, some finger, something like that. They just can't sit still. Those people burn an average of 500 to 800 more calories because of the way their nervous system responds to twitching. And these, uh, these un not uncontrolled, but non-fluid movements. And so you think about how many women are like, you know, no, I'm very poised. I'm not bouncing a knee. I'm not doing that. <laughs> it's quite literally because it keeps stimulating, stimulating these cells. So being somebody that moves and herky-jerky actually helps. It's, it's odd. It's because these cells don't work very well. <laughs> so we should all take that up. Just be one of these people who's moving and constantly. <laughs> but you think about it. It's very like the people that are, you know, the ones that you're like, you know, yeah. they're, they, yeah. Do you ever, they, they are often thinner. I used to be married to one. Oh, my husband's <laughs> always got his knee bouncing and he can eat an exorbitant amount of food. He's got an eight pack at 56. It's like, he used to make right. me crazy. So the nervous system is really, really important. The other thing that happens is we have a transporter in our muscle tissue that transports glucose into the cell, right? And it's a transporter called GLUT4. We have diabetes medications that we're trying to build for this stuff. GLUT4 gets sleepy when we go through menopause. So it makes it harder to get sugar inside the muscle cell. So you kind of think of it this way, the sugar mo molecules sitting on a corner, waiting to get into the muscle cell, and they can see the Uber driver at the corner, and they're waiting for it, but the Uber driver's never getting there because they're off in the distance because they're only doing about four miles an hour. So these transports become slow. Now, it sounds terrible because people go, oh man, <laughs> now what do I do? It sounds like I'm screwed, right? <laughs> yeah. So, the truth is, is we can turn all those things back on. You know, it's funny because you're you're saying now it sounds like I'm screwed. 
And I'm thinking, no, the, the answer is just don't go through menopause. And then I know people look at you like, what do you mean don't go through menopause? Keep your hormones like That's they were true. before you went through menopause. And then you don't have to have any of this. That is the secret, y'all. Yeah, it's it's interesting because if, if female hormones balanced was so damaging and it was going to cause cancer and all these other things, then we should see an extraordinary amount of cancer in 20 and 30 year olds when they're at hormonal peak. Exactly. Balanced hormones are what tell the body that we're still supposed to be on the planet and we're valid and important to the planet. When you take them away, the body goes, oh, time to decay, right? Time to break down and fall apart. It is so true. And the idea that we believe otherwise, this notion that anything we were given that made us healthy and developed us into the healthy, vital, alive adults that we become is bad for us, just boggles my mind what we will actually believe. And it's like we park our brains sometimes. You know, I think we women, we give up our power, a little bit of a rant here, but we give up our power and we look to other external authorities to tell us what is the truth. When if you just use your common sense, right? It's like if someone tried to tell you that, oh, that calcium that you're getting in your diet is bad for you. And it's, you know, the calcium that's in your atherosclerotic plaque in your heart causing heart disease is what's causing heart disease, right? If somebody told you that, I would hope you would say that's insane. Calcium is needed. It's what helps me grow and develop healthy bones and have good neurotransmission and all of this. But this idea that people say the hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, that make us healthy all of a sudden when we replace it in menopause, they're gonna turn on us and cause breast cancer and all these other problems. It's insane to me, but I think that we women stop questioning things. And if someone told you that was true of calcium, oh no, don't take calcium. It's gonna clog up your arteries and cause plaque and heart disease. We hopefully would say that's insane, but we don't do the same with hormones. Is this making sense or am I sounding crazy? No, absolutely. <laughs> so the, the thing that I would, I would, recommend everybody think about, and I think I'm going to do a podcast on this. So as a researcher, right? So I'm actually truly a researcher. I spend time digging through the research, making up hypotheses, proving my hypothesis either right or wrong. Right. So the first thing you have to think about is you got to check your premise. A good scientist and a good researcher comes up with a hypothesis, a hypothesis, and that's their question. Is this true? Yes or no? A good researcher goes to disprove their hypothesis. They don't go to prove it. Most of the research, particularly the women's health study that still gets quoted and should be retracted and burned at the stake <laughs> for its inappropriateness and its poor methodology was started by people that wanted to prove that hormones were bad for women over 50 that were over you know, past menopause. That's the premise that most of them went into it with and did a poor study design, which is probably too much than what we get into that. So right. you have to check your premise. And the problem is, is almost all of our research is funded by outside interests that, that want a particular outcome. And it's also being conducted by people that have a selection bias and a personal bias that they're, they're translating into their research. So the best thing you could ever do is if you're looking at something and you believe something, you should always go look for what the other side says. I am required to do that as a researcher. I must look at everything that contradicts what I think before I can really go and do my study. 
But unfortunately, a lot of the research that get published, and particularly the stuff in, in major media, is poorly done. The methodology is terrible, and our, our health is paying for it. Extraordinarily so as women. And particularly as women, I think it's just egregious because because of our high levels of estrogen, progesterone, and we have testosterone too, and then we lose it in such a dramatic fashion over a very short period of time, and the consequences are devastating, literally. So, all right, we have gone down a little bit of a rabbit hole. I'm wondering if you can leave everyone with a little optimism about what's possible for them and how they can get this beautiful vehicle that they've been given to live this life in into the shape that they need so that they can deliver the gifts that they have so that they can risk and do the things they want to do. Like we started talking about Erica Young's quote, if you don't risk anything, you risk even more. What have you got left to do on this planet before you leave it? This is like the third act, second act, whatever act you want to call it. You've got to have great health to get there. And that means a healthy weight, healthy energy. So what's possible and how do you get there? So definitely, I don't want anybody to, to, to hear what I said and go, oh my gosh, it sounds like it doesn't work. Because for me, as I dug through this and found this, I was able to drop 35 pounds without extraordinary, like without killing myself. I can eat foods today. I'm metabolically flexible, so I can, I can have some carbohydrates and it's not like it's gonna go straight to my butt by the next day. I can eat a high protein, low carb diet and I'm fine. I can, I can go through things like intermittent fasting where I'm not you know, ready to claw somebody's eyes out because I'm starving because my body is efficient, right? So some of the things that you can easily do right now. So the first thing is all those foods that I listed off that raise uric acid, check yourself. Check yourself and try not to eat so many of those, right? It's not that you don't have any of them because it's impossible to re really remove everything, but you want to you want to kind of make sure that you're not driving it. So if you so even if you go get a skinny margarita because I hear this all the time, I'm going to have a skinny margarita. They're mm -hmm. using agave. Agave is almost all fructose. So if I do that before I eat a meal and I'm dehydrated, I'm setting myself up for like bad stuff, right? So take out the high fructose corn syrup, the fructose, the aged foods, the food additives, eat foods in their whole natural form because it's the food additives that are also causing a problem. Get the sugar out of the diet, watch your alcohol because that also raises uric acid. The other thing is make sure you're well hydrated so you're not turning on that fructose conversion from glucose because you could do that all day long every day particularly before you eat. The other thing, so when we look at, I think it's really important to find out, you know, obviously we do genetics, we do the hormone metabolism. I think it's really important as women to know how you're wired. Mm -hmm. You know, what works for one person doesn't work for another. And when you know those rules, it makes it easier for you to manip manipulate. So things like hormone metabolism testing and DNA is super important. But even if you don't have that, the next thing I would make sure that I'm doing is that I'm doing movement that helps turn on some of that nervous system stuff. You know, I alluded to it because if I have a slow nervous system to burn my fat and my transport for sugar into the muscle cell is slow, the two things that I make sure I really, really want to do is I need to turn on that nervous system. So, you know, some of my people, we practice like, you know, those sort of kind of crazy little movements, but I need to move more. That doesn't mean exercise more because sometimes women are overdoing it and they're driving cortisol and a bunch of other stuff, but I need to move more. So think I'm walking, I'm doing more general movement mm -hmm. and need to do exercise that stimulates the heck out of my big muscle groups, your butt, your hips, your thighs, your legs. 
So that means that I need to do weightlifting. And weightlifting is super important also to bone density and other things, which is a huge area of concern for women our age and above. So weightlifting stimulates that GLUT4 transport along with more movement and high intensity intervals. But that doesn't mean I do two a days, right? That doesn't mean I have so many women that work out too much because they think if I keep burning it, I'll get it off, you know, but that could be counterproductive. But we do need to move more, particularly for sedentary because it's very hard for our body to do that stuff. And that could be simply just going out and walking in nature. I think that's another big part of it is like getting a little more centered, getting a little more, you know, time to yourself, getting a little more time in nature also helps. Yes, so true. So there is hope. You can have the best health of your life over 40. It's perfectly possible. You just need to find a guide who can help you get there. And you need to do it. And you need to do it now because like Cheryl Sandberg says, we need women at all levels, including the top, to change the dynamic, reshape the conversation, to make sure women's voices are heard and heeded, not overlooked and ignored. Thank you so much for joining me, Betty. Thank you for the research you do and the work you do. We will have links to Betty's social media, to her podcast, but tell everybody about these resources that you have and where they can find out more about you. Certainly. So so definitely my podcast is This This Functional Life. And we cover these topics and more. You can also, we'll have a link in the show notes for a quiz, a hormone type quiz, so you can understand what's at play, because again, your hormones all interplay. And that's a fun quiz that gives you a lot of information. And then if you look me up at bettymurray.com, you can find information about me and the things that I do, so. Yes, the hormone reset quiz. Definitely, we'll have the link in the show notes. You can go there and find your unique hormonal imbalance. And we'll have the link in the show notes so you want to do that. And thank you so much, Betty, for joining me. It was so good to see you. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I know that incredible vitality occurs for women over 40 when we learn to speak hormone and balance these vital regulators to create the health and the life that we deserve. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you'd give me a review and subscribe. It really does help this podcast out so much. You can visit thehormoneprescription.com where we have some free gifts for you. And you can sign up to have a hormone evaluation with me on the podcast to gain clarity into your personal situation. Until next time, remember, take small steps each day to balance your hormones and watch the wonderful changes in your health that begin to unfold for you. Talk to you soon.